This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the BBC News Quiz, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Progressive, The Breakdown from The Nation Magazine, Comedian Lee Camp, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Onion News Network with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users, also from The Onion News Network. Jeremy, which pretty straight kind of guy appeared in public without notes this week? Well, again, we're slightly banjaxed because the show is recorded before the appearance of Tony Blair at the Chilcot Inquiry. He was on it last year, and uh, they thought he was so good, mm. he's got a recall. <laughs> By the time this show goes out, he will have appeared, and we don't know what he will say. But the inquiry wants to publish extracts from his messages to George Bush. But Sir Gus O'Donnell, who is head of light entertainment at the Home Office or something, <laughs> he's, he won't let them. So we are not allowed to read what Tony Blair said to George Bush, which I imagine is predominantly answers, <laughs> such as, yes, boss, whatever you say, and, oh, George, I can see your duodenum from up here. By the way, he doesn't like to refer to this as his second appearance at the inquiry. He oh. likes to see it more as a second coming. That's fair <laughs> They've released the uh, letters, though, that Prescott wrote to Bush. We can actually read those, which, which basically go, you know when you say you, you like, Tony, do you mean like-like? As in, you know, like or just like. Just check it. <laughs> the idea is supposed to be they're being held back because they contain terrible secrets, but... It is just probably, yeah. like Blair going, we, we can't do this without a mandate, and Bush going, sort of, lol, mandate, sounds a bit gay. Most of these notes, anyway, have actually been published, because all these details of them have been published in Bush's memoirs, and in Blair's memoirs, I and know, in Campbell's memoirs. And, well, that's the thing, obviously, not the Chilcot Inquiry. You think no. it would be a good place to start. Gus O'Donnell is apparently Britain's top civil servant, and how do they know? I mean, is there like an X Factor for civil servants? Is there like a... When they come on, 75,000 documents! <laughs> Three white papers! <laughs> or, I think you're very brave, love, you've come up here and you've, <laughs> and you've formulated policy and I think you've been on a journey and I think you're marvellous. <laughs> Former Prime Minister Tony Blair today, Friday, made his second appearance at the Chilcot Inquiry into the Iraq invasion, where he had to defend the fact that Cabinet Secretary Gus O'Donnell prevented the publication of notes sent by Blair to George Bush. Or, if you're listening to the repeat, the world is still reeling from Tony Blair's appearance at the Chilcot Inquiry <laughs> yesterday, where he broke down under questioning and made a tearful confession before being arrested for war crimes and hauled away to the Hague. <laughs>
It's not hard to imagine the legal and moral problems with the CIA flying robot drones over Pakistan. According to the agency, this is a good way to kill terrorists and militants. But many civilians are also killed, and the fact that the CIA is doing the killing raises serious legal concerns about the rules of war. But Newsweek magazine's February 21st issue presents the CIA program in an overwhelmingly positive light, largely unburdened by such concerns. Readers learn that the CIA bureaucracy is, quote, multi-layered and methodical, run by a core of civil servants who carry out their duties in a professional manner. Close quote. We're told of one drone strike that kills a high-level terrorism suspect while members of his family were spared. But how typical is that? Estimates vary. One analysis figured that 32% of drone deaths were civilians. Estimates in the Pakistani media are closer to 90%. Newsweek explains that Obama administration officials have, quote, been careful to reassure the public that the killings are legal, close quote. But the evidence for this, in the next sentence, is an official who states that operations are conducted in strict accordance with American law anonymously. In other words, we're following the law, but don't quote me on that. So where are the actual critics of drone assassinations? Tucked at the very end of the piece, where the magazine admits that drone-fired missiles are, quote, not always precise in the real world, close quote. Readers might have hoped that that would be the world under discussion. say about this in the post show was as far as i can recall was more or less just a constant stream of swearing on my part because this story is so reprehensible it is so stunning you know that bradley manning the private who was an intelligence officer in iraq and at one point just hit the wall where he could not no longer support this government because of what it was doing in Iraq uh, specifically because he had been ordered to essentially uh, track and harass Iraqis who were just expressing dissent with the government they weren't doing anything violent uh, and that's when he hit his wall and allegedly allegedly then uploaded materials to uh, WikiLeaks site Thousands of these cables that we've referenced, images of U.S. firing on Iraqis, etc., uh, etc. Et That's all allegedly. He has been in prison now for over a year and a half. The charges keep changing based upon the American government's belief in whether or not they can convince him to, in any way, finger... Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, which they now admit they cannot. 
He has been left in solitary confinement for 23 hours out of the day. He is not allowed to exercise in his cell. He is not given a pillow. He is essentially being tortured. There has never been the suggestion that he would be dangerous to other people. To the extent that he's been suggested that he would be a danger to himself, they have not been able to get a single psychiatrist on Quant uh, at Quantico to sign off on that. He has not gotten his speedy trial. People who have visited him have been harassed repeatedly. And as of March 5th, and this is ongoing according to the New York Times, according to both his attorney and to Charlie Savage in the New York Times, the Brig at Quantico has repeatedly and is systemically and as now normal practice stripping Manning of all his clothing for the past three nights starting uh, so back on March 2nd they continue to, to um, practice this indefinitely they strip him naked every night they make him go to roll call in the morning standing at attention naked The defense, this speaking of himself, communicated with PFC Manning and the Brig forensic psychiatrist, learned more about the decision to strip him of his clothing every night. On Wednesday, March 2nd, Manning was told that Article 138 complaint, his Article 138 uh, complaint requesting that he be removed from maximum custody and prevention of injury watch, he is on this POI watch, had been denied by the Quantico commander. Despite the fact that Press Secretary Jeff Morrell of the Pentagon has said that Manning has been nothing short of exemplary as a detainee. Despite the fact that Brig forensic psychiatrists have consistently maintained there is no mental health justification for the POI watch imposed on Manning. Manning then remarked that the POI restrictions were absurd and sarcastically stated that if he wanted to harm himself, he could conceivably do so with the elastic waistband of his underwear or with his flip-flops. So without consulting any Brig mental pro health provider, the chief warrant officer used Manning's sarcastic quip as justification to increase the restrictions imposed upon him under the guise of being concerned that Manning was a suicide risk. Because suicide risk watch would require a Brig mental health provider's recommendation, which the Brig commander cannot secure. In response to this specific incident, the Briggs psychiatrist assessed PFC Manning as, quote, low risk and requiring only routine outpatient follow-up with no need for closer clinical observation. In particular, he indicated that Manning's statement about the waistband and his underwear was no way prompted by a psychiatric condition. In other words, they're using this as an excuse to break him down to, as a punitive torture device. I quote via Digby, the CIA memo describing combined interrogation techniques in December 30th of 2004 used against Iraqi and Afghani prisoners. 
Establishing the baseline state is important to demonstrate to the HVD, this is the, the uh, prisoner, that he has no control over basic human needs. The baseline state also creates in the de detainee a mindset in which he learns to perceive and value his personal welfare, comfort, and immediate needs more than the information he is protecting. What information is Bradley Manning protecting? The use of conditioning techniques do not generally bring immediate results. Rather, it is the cumulative effect of these techniques used over time and in combination with other interrogation techniques and intelligence exploitation methods which achieve interrogation objectives. These conditioning techniques require little or no physical interaction between the TDNE and the interrogator. The specific interrogation, interrogation techniques are A. Nudity. The HVD clothes are taken and remains nude until the interrogators provide clothes to him. These methods were approved by Rumsfeld at Gitmo on December 2nd in 2002. They were approved in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2003. They are torturing this guy in the hopes that he will give them some type of false confession. They recently charged him the other day with aiding the enemy, a eligible for the death sentence. This is all just a coincidence. This is happening in our country. These are not just rogue elements taking pictures of nude men in pyramids in Iraq and John Kerry all he has to say about it well it's good that people are starting to look into this it's disgusting it is an incredible shame there is no way President Obama is not aware of this no way As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. So Barack Obama not only isn't shutting down Guantanamo Bay like he promised, he's now going ahead with the kangaroo military trials down there. This is a huge retreat for Obama, who campaigns so loudly about what a human rights offense and black eye to our reputation Guantanamo is. Evidently, he now believes we can live with this ongoing eyesore, and the human rights problem is just not that big of a concern for him, I guess. 
but it should be for us. To allow indefinite detention is against our Constitution and against the Geneva Conventions. And to allow these military commissions to go on and to possibly sentence people to death at them is an abomination. The U.S. has no leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing other nations about human rights abuses. The Obama administration is still kidnapping people and sending them to black sites around the world. And here Americans are claiming to be on the moral high ground, so much so that people are clamoring for the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone over Libya. Who are we to do that? And who's going to impose a no-fly zone over Afghanistan to prevent the U.S. from killing innocent Afghan children? We need to clean up our act before we start claiming the right to intervene all over the place. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This week, we have a question that comes from David Swanson. That Twitter handle is David C. Swanson, and he's an activist and writer you've probably seen around. And he wants to know, how much could the U.S. cut Pentagon spending and still maintain the most expensive military on the planet? Got another question from someone else who followed up and said, how much Pentagon spending could be cut such that we still outspent all the other countries combined? And to answer the question of just how much we can cut and still maintain American exceptionalism in the realm of the military, I have Dr. Miriam Pemberton. She's a research fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. She writes and speaks on demilitarization issues as part of the Foreign Policy and Focus Project. And she leads a group that produces the annual Unified Security Budget for the United States. It's a really great document that lays out in brass tax terms how we can reduce military spending and still be a secure country. Miriam, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Okay, so maybe let's start out with just a few. I don't want to get super number heavy since this is an audio podcast and sometimes numbers start to swim around in one's head when spoken. But let's let's give a few baselines here. How much do we spend every year on defense and what percentage of the discretional budget is that and how much has that gone up over the last 10 years? Let's start with there. Like how much are we spending and what's the trend line? There ought to be a simple answer. It sort of depends what you count. There's what we call the base budget, which is what we spend whether we're going to war or not. And then, as your listenership probably knows, we add on top what we actually spend to go to war. So the base budget this year, so the budget's coming out on Monday, Valentine's Day, and what I hear is that the base budget is going to be about $553 billion, but that doesn't include the $140 billion that we're going to spend on the war. And it also doesn't include what we spend on the nuclear weapons complex. And then you can add in, you know, various things that you may or may not want to count, like veterans affairs and the interest that we pay on the debt to sustain this military spending. But if you want to call just the base budget, the military budget, then that's going to be about $553 billion. If you put the war in, which obviously you should. I think we should. Uh, put the, yeah, let, let, let's say, let's say base. <laughs> 
Let's say as a reasonable <laughs> as a reasonable estimate here, the base budget plus the war, which brings us to what around We're around seven hundred billion. That's a nice round figure. That's great. That's a nice round figure. You may recall a similar figure from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of two thousand nine, which is better known as the stimulus. That came in at around seven hundred and seventy billion dollars, so ten percent more. But of course, was split over two years. That was the big government footprint, the thing that was going to bankrupt us and put all this debt to our grandkids. That's one half of what is just the routine expenses of the current war and the DOD budget and doesn't count a whole bunch of other stuff. Is that sort of where things are? That is absolutely right. So when we're talking about $700 billion, what percentage of the overall discretionary budget is that? That sounds like a lot of it. <laughs> about half, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about half. It's more than half. Mm-hmm. More, more than half. When you don't look at Social Security, Medicare, uh, other things that are part of the non-discretionary budget, but just what we sort of appropriate every year affirmatively, more than half of what we appropriate is going to be for defense. Now, this is like an old lefty trope, right? You know, we've all seen the bumper sticker of like, it'll be a great day when the Air Force has to hold a bake sale and schools have all the money they mm-hmm. want, etc. And you've been working on this issue for a while. And has, has it gotten better or worse, say, over the last 10 years? Because it's obviously we spend a lot of defense. We spend a lot on defense defense going back a long time, probably since World War II, at least. But within the category of spending a lot in defense, there's differences in trends. What has the trend been over, say, the last 10 years? Trend is expanded by 67% since 2001. 67%. And it's now higher than at any time since Higher in inflation-adjusted dollars? In inflation-adjusted terms, yes. Okay. So, uh, so that's, that's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I guess one thing maybe to clarify is that that is not because, I mean, one, the obvious thing you would say is, well, we had 9-11 and whether you supported or opposed the war in Afghanistan and then subsequently Iraq, you know, those were expensive. So yeah, we're fighting two wars. No wonder we're spending more money. Is it just the wars that account for that expansion of that massive 67% expansion over a decade? No, the base budget has gone up a pace right along with the war spending budget. So that Congress basically after 9-11 just decided that there would be no holds barred. There would be no limits to what we would spend on our security. And so that's what we've got now. And so there was no limit on the base budget and there was no limit on the war spending budget. And it couldn't be challenged. And now there are some challenges focused on our debt problem. Right. That seems like that's the big kind of perfect storm that's emerging here, which mm-hmm. is that there's a certain rhetoric which is mostly emanating from the from the political right about anxiety over the size of the American annual deficit, which is a flow, and the debt, which is a stock, as a number that we add to, and the effect that's going to have on interest rates and our grandchildren, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it all before. And so we have to cut the budget. And if you're going to cut the budget, as we've just said, over 50% of the discretionary budget is the military. Maybe you should start looking at that. What indications are we seeing that that is something that might be on the table, both from the White House and Congress? Yeah, I mean, it's completely completely split the Republican Party, which is really interesting. A lot of the Tea Partiers really, you know, everyone, almost everyone says, well, everything should be on the table, including Pentagon spending. And that includes, you know, the House Majority Leader, Eric Cantor, has said exactly that. And the president says it. But it's important to know that the president is going to put forward a budget, which the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, keeps calling cuts. And most of the media talks about Gates's budget cuts. It's important to know that in real terms, what he's really talking about is they plan ahead and they're planning for increases. And then when they say, well, we're going to slow that rate of increase, we're going to define that as a cut. 
Now, in my mind, that is not a cut. So it's important to know that... Right, so we're not even, you know, say, freezing at a certain level, which I think would count as a cut, right? If you say, you know, we're going to freeze it at 2010 levels because there's inflation. And we're talking about increases actually over and above the rate of inflation. Right. You know, the president talks about everything on the table, but then he exempts the defense budget from this five-year freeze that he's going to be proposing on Monday. You know, the head of the budget committee who's proposing this $100 billion of cuts likewise exempts the defense budget. And yet, you know, we've seen all this disarray in the Republican Congress and not at all clear that the Tea Partiers are going to go along with exempting the defense budget because a lot of them have talked about cutting it. So it's going to be a very interesting time. So let's circle back then and, and try to answer the question. So, you know, let's say we're, we're spending $700 billion this year. How much can we take out of that and still have the most expensive military on the planet? <laughs> Well, I sort of figured this out, and the answer is we could cut it. <laughs> we could cut it by eighty-seven percent and still spend more than <laughs> the next country, which is China. They claim to spend about seventy billion dollars. You know, independent sources jack it up a little higher. But even if you go a little higher, you know, you're not going to get much above ninety or or a hundred. So we can cut most of our budget and still be the most expensive military on the planet. What if that's not good enough? What if, from the perspective of the world's lone superpower, we want to make sure that not only are we the most expensive military, but we actually outspend all the other countries combined? What's that look like? Well, we don't actually, at the moment, spend more than all the other countries Oh, that's, uh, that's good to know. I feel like that... However... Yeah. <laughs> However, if you want to acknowledge that we do have some allies and, you know, our main recognized alliance is the NATO alliance... So if you put what NATO spends with what the U.S. spends, then we do spend those two together. And since we're not likely to be going to war anytime soon against Britain or France, you know, we are spending more than the rest of the world put together. So the U.S. plus NATO is more than the rest of the world put together. Correct. Right. Well, so so it seems like there's a fair amount of give there. I mean, the, the big question always is the entrenched interests, both defense contractors and congressional representatives who have either bases or contractors in their district, and also the kind of rhetoric of a strong military. I mean, are those the big obstacles to cuts? Yep, that, that about says it. Those are the ones, yeah. You know we spend a lot of money on things that you don't a lot of money on things that you don't need Oh, won't you spend some time with me You know what's not being talked about by either side? The war in Afghanistan. Even though a couple of months ago it came out that we, the United States, in all of our wisdom, are funding both sides of the war in Afghanistan. Both sides. We are paying hundreds of millions to the Taliban so that they will let our trucks through to supply our troops. Which means we are paying the Taliban millions so that we can fight the Taliban. That's right, Yossarian. We are losing a game of solitaire. Here's how to explain this a little more clearly. Do you remember when your crazy uncle who looked a lot like Terry Bradshaw in tight pants would get too drunk at the Christmas party?
party and he'd come up to you when you were about eight years old, grab your wrist, start hitting you in your own face with your own hand repeatedly and going, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Well, that's Afghanistan. Except there's no uncle. It's just us punching ourselves repeatedly in the face and occasionally the crotch and paying billions for the privilege to do it. We are playing a game of Twister alone. No wonder some scrappy insurgents wearing rags and flip-flops are able to compete with the most powerful military in the world. They have us on their side. We're eating our own legs off and then wondering why, no matter how much we eat, we never seem to gain any weight. I think the only answer to this is just to dump more money onto the problem. Just pallets of cash raining down on them. At some point, the Taliban will get sick of it and be like, please, no more money, just leave. Our kids are choking on dollar bills. Our goats are buried alive. No more cash. And one last thing. I'm starting a campaign to move Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22 to the nonfiction section of your local library. I'm Lee Camp for Grit TV. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but the game if it ain't saying nothing. Something happening yeah. What it And finally, Afghanistan is often referred to as the Forgotten War. Usually that's a reference to the lack of media spotlight on the U.S. military personnel there. But if it's true for them, how much more so for Afghan civilians in the conflict, who are dying in far greater numbers? We got an illustration of U.S. media's interest in this aspect of the war recently. Nine Afghan boys gathering firewood were killed on March 1st by a U.S. NATO helicopter attack in Kunar province. How many stories did the killing of these children receive on ABC, CBS, or NBC morning or evening news shows as of March 6th, according to searches of the Nexus News Database? That would be two. One was an 80-word report on NBC Nightly News, the other a brief ABC World News Sunday story about Afghan President Hamid Karzai's harsh words for the U.S. after the, quote, mistaken killing of nine Afghan boys in an airstrike, close quote. On the PBS NewsHour, the nine children received two brief mentions during the Other News of the Day segment. On NPR, nothing. On MSNBC, nothing. On Fox News Channel, nothing. All the more remarkable that Americans continue to say they overwhelmingly oppose the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan, despite media's best efforts to shield them from its daily impact. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 
$5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. We talked a little bit at the end of the last segment about the idea of a decline, a national decline. And I know there's a lot of very proud Americans who will think that even considering an idea like that is somehow un-American. I would contend to you that other nations that have had to deal with similar situations found it helpful to acknowledge their position and react accordingly. I think blind patriotism that you know, blinds you or won't allow you to see things for what they really are is going to make your situation all the worse when, you know, the inevitable realities that you didn't confront because you didn't want to be unpatriotic and think of your country in decline will you know, smack you upside the head much worse than if you had tried to craft some sort of a soft landing for your country as it returned to a more normal power relationship with the rest of the world. Remember, folks, I know it's hard to think in terms of the long term when you live in a certain time. But you have to see how our descendants are going to see the period we live in now. This is all coming off the post-World War II highs once time compresses three or four hundred years from now. We're going to look like we lived five seconds after the World War II generation. When in reality, many of you listening to my voice know no one from that generation. To our descendants, you know, the period from 1945 to 2045 is going to look relatively compressed and like it all happened really quickly. And right now, this is just the United States running out of the steroids that the domination crafted by the Second World War provided for us. What kind of landing are we going to have when we return to more normal power relationship levels based on our resources, our capability, our economic health, all that stuff? It's the same sort of situation the British had to confront, you know, at the end of the Second World War and to some degree at the end of the First World War. And the British were more intelligent about the way they conducted their, you know, era of hegemony. The British Empire in the 19th century was the strongest superpower on the planet. And the way they conducted themselves when they had that role was much smarter than the way we do now. And the way they handled the coming down from those highs to a more normal level for them was also handled better. You know, Ben, Ben loves this idea I play with sometimes. You know, I don't watch any of these reality TV shows. I have to be honest with you. I'm so far out of pop culture. It's not funny. But every now and then I'll catch the advertisements for one and you don't have to be a genius to figure out, you know, what the plot of the show is. And there's this one called Wife Swap. And by the way, you British people, I blame all you for this kind of stuff because you had it all first. And we're just dumb enough to look at something like that and think that sounds like a good idea. Let's copy that. Shows you how bankrupt our own ideas are. But I see this wife swap program where uh, a woman will, you know, change families with another woman and live with each other's families. And it's supposed to be intriguing how that turns out. And Ben is always fascinated by my idea that I want to do that with the British and American governments. <laughs> I want to take the, the British Parliament and I want to put it in Washington, D.C. for a year. And I want them to look at our issues from their perspective and do the legislating for us. And just to give you an idea of what we're up against, you uh, folks in the UK, I want to give you our people. I want to have, you know, John Boehner talking about, you know, what we're going to do about that problem up at, you know, in York. Have that issue with Manchester. What are you going to do about that, Nancy Pelosi? 
would be kind of fun for me. And I love watching the high-minded um, British politicians debating the public employee situation in Wisconsin and exactly how we're going to handle the current situation in Afghanistan. In any case, if you look back at how the British handled their period of hegemony, they had a wonderful way to try to keep a little perspective on their military expenditures. They had a formula, right? Remember, the British Empire was maintained by the British Navy, the greatest navy in the world. In the 19th century, navies were the most expensive sort of expenditure you could have. That was the big budget military ticket item of the day. Building ships was extremely expensive, and only the great powers had the money to build lots of them. And if you didn't have lots of them, you were not a player on the world stage. The British formula during their heyday for trying to figure out how much spending they needed to maintain their you know, dominance and how much was too much was an idea based on you know, everybody else's military spending. Their formula was our navy needs to be as powerful as the next two greatest navies in the world put together. That gives you a baseline to determine you know, how in line your funding is with your goals. Very intelligent way to do it. Because you know if we're not spending as much as the next two powers are on their naval armaments, we need to spend more. If they're spending less than we are, well, then maybe we're overdoing it a little bit. It's a great formula. Served the... Um, folks in Britain well, and then when their power began to wane, first at the end of the First World War, then at the end of the Second World War especially, um, and colonies started becoming independent, and the Commonwealth became a little bit you know, less connected and all these things, you know, the British Empire disintegrated softly. They had some really tough years in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but in historical terms, that's a pretty soft landing for an empire. Look at how Spain ended up after their period of dominance in the Renaissance and Enlightenment era. Judging by that standard, the British descent from hegemony was handled extremely well. Now let's look at our own version of that. First of all, we would benefit enormously from some sort of you know, baseline standards like the Brits had for how powerful their military should be. Because we have nothing like that. Let me give you an analogy of how our military spending in this country goes during a period when we're in relative economic decline, right? We order stuff from the guy who makes James Bond's car. Remember James Bond's car in all the 007 movies? You go in there and he's always got this radical car that can, you know, shoot machine guns out the back and drop oil slicks and, you know, have a bulletproof top or whatever it is. We go to that guy, and he says, what kind of a car do you want? What do you want it to do? And we say, we want it to be able to do anything. The car we order from James Bond's, you know, automotive genius has to be able to contend with anything. So we end up getting an extremely expensive car that has a cloaking device and an invisibility screen and death ray, and, you know, it can fly upside down. Whatever we need, that car will do it. That's a really expensive car. And you're probably not going to need, you know, nine out of ten things that it does. But if you look at the way the U.S. military is crafted and you read the outlines and the plans and what our defense strategy is, instead of having what the Brits had, where they'd say, well, our Navy needs to be as powerful as the next two navies put together, our defense budget is much more amorphous. And the strategy is that we need to be able to eclipse any other potential challenger. That's the way it's phrased. No one can come near us. We need to, anybody who's even on the horizon has to be just kept at bay. What does that mean? 
You can't see who's on the horizon. You're asking for James Bond's car and you want, you know, everything. What do you want it to do? Everything? What sort of eventuality should it be able to handle? Anything. That's what our military situation is now. They used to be able to say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the standard we had set for ourselves was that our military needed to be able to fight two Korean-sized conflicts on opposite sides of the globe. That was a much healthier benchmark than what we have now, which is, you know, basically anything. There is no right number for, you know, James Bond's supercar, and there is no right number based on the standards of how our military, you know, defense spending is viewed by the experts um, as correct. No number is high enough by our current standards. And yet, we're starting to eat our municipalities alive. Look at the red ink and all these state budgets. And a lot of the reason for the red ink is stuff that, you know, dominoes down from federal spending. Folks, what if we adopted the, you know, old British Navy idea for what was the right amount of you know, defense spending in order to maintain dominance. I'm not talking about, you know, like, okay, we're going to come down to earth and we're going to have a isolationist military and get out of all these countries. I'm talking about maintaining dominance, but having some sort of reality about what the military expenditures in a declining, you know, system should be. Most people have no idea how much we spend. This is the first thing I think Americans need to realize because it's shocking for most people to find out. First of all, you cannot get an easy handle on the military budget in the United States of America, and this is by design. Parts have been removed from the budget and transferred to other places in the budget for years, decades, as a way to sort of hide how big it really is. It also makes it next to impossible to have real comparisons between budgets from earlier days and budgets now. For example, you go back and you look at the military budget from the late 1950s when Dwight Eisenhower is president and we are in the worst decade of the Cold War. The military expenditures are beyond anything this country's ever seen. They're so bad that, of course, a couple years later, Eisenhower will warn about the growth in the military industrial complex in his farewell address in 1960. And if you look at Eisenhower's budget, the military budget in Eisenhower's day is a real budget. Everything coming from defense expenditures is there. Well, okay, I should correct myself, except for some of the intelligence stuff. More on that in a second. But if you looked at Eisenhower's budget, it was a realistic look at what we were spending on the military. Now, you will hear people all the time compare our current budget in terms of, you know, the percentage of, uh, of GDP and all this kind of stuff to the Eisenhower era budgets all the time. But you can't do that. You know why? Because we've removed a lot of things from the defense you know, budget now that were part of Eisenhower's budget. Take, for example, the VA, you know, all the veterans and disabilities expenditures, that whole part of the budget that paid for the costs of soldiers after they were done soldiering was a part of the defense budget in Eisenhower's day. It isn't anymore. It's a separate part of the budget. So now when people talk about the defense budget and they give you a number, they don't include that number. But in Eisenhower's day, that VA number was, you know, wrapped into it because that's honest. You're not talking about real defense numbers if you've exempted all that stuff. Because, folks, wait till the bill comes due on, you know, the people that went to, you know, Gulf War I, Gulf War II in Afghanistan now. We're going to be paying for these people for a long time to come. And by the way, we should. Some of these Republican hawks that are always talking about support our troops and some of the Democrats, too, 
are out there talking about where the budget cut should come from because there's got to be some in the military. And they're talking about going after troops and benefits and health things and disability things. And you sit there and go, really? Really? You're going to do that? You send them into that maelstrom and now you're going to cut from them? The human side of this? Controlling what you see and when you see it. It's called toping, short for isotoping, illegally enriching uranium. A new report says one in five teens is doing it, and that has many parents worried. The sleepy town of Woodview, New Jersey, was rocked last week when six teens were arrested for conspiring to sell enriched uranium to foreign nationals for the purpose of making a nuclear weapon. Guys come in saying, oh, I made 24 kilograms of uranium, oh, I made... 82 kilograms of uranium, and it's like a big competition. The school was tipped off when football coach Ron Shipley saw some paraphernalia in the locker room. I mean, at first, I, I thought maybe he was just, you know, separating some U-238 isotopes to develop a nuclear energy program or something, but you can't be too careful nowadays, you know? Were you shocked when you found out? Well, you know, you never think it's your kid who's going to go sell enriched uranium to a rogue nation. When Tim Drucker's parents searched his bedroom, they found a tunnel to a 74-acre underground centrifuge in the backyard. We didn't want to be the kind of parents who went snooping in his room, reading his communiques with arms dealers, anything like that. And then there's the Facebook factor. Many students have gotten in trouble when photos of so-called toping parties have wound up online. What's causing the rise in teen toping? Some blame the glorified portrayal of nuclear weaponization on TV. Others say that the rise of so-called nuke rap glamorizes nuclear enrichment. Toping, uh, uh, and freaking, uh, uh. Toping all night like a motherfucker. Now every third world Arab nation wanna get with this. No matter the cause, the debate about toping continues. Is it as dangerous as some contend? Or is it just a case of kids being kids? For Beyond the Facts, I'm Jean Ann Wharton. That's a number that's hard to get your hands on, too. Let's give you the stated number for just the defense budget, not the VA, not the nuclear weapons, not the intelligence and all that. The official number from 2009 
is almost $670 billion for the year. Now, before you say something like, well, Dan, we're in the middle of a couple of wars, of course the cost is high. It doesn't include that. Those are supplemental warfighting bills that are outside of that parameter, just as the VA is outside of that parameter and the intelligence is outside of that parameter and the nuclear weapons that are part of the uh, agricultural budget are out of that parameter. That's not even a real number, but it's $670 billion annually anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, in the grand scheme of things, that's a third of the pie, especially when you add in the nukes and the intelligence and the long-term costs and everything, the warfighting costs, easily a third of the pie. That's where the money is. How much money are we spending compared to other powers? To go back to that idea of what the Brits tried to do to give themselves a rational baseline for how much is enough, how much is not enough, and how much is too much in terms of maintaining your position as the you know, global superpower. Well, the 2009 numbers that I was using cites Great Britain as the second largest military spender, although that flip-flops with France sometimes because their numbers are very close, um, at about $67 billion. So our unreal, not taking into account huge parts of the military expenditure budget or the wars, is six hundred and just under $670 billion per year. And the next strongest power, Great Britain, is spending $67 billion. And I'm not any sort of a authority at all on the way Britain's budgetary policies work, I would only assume, just based on common sense, that they are not doing with their budget what we are, you know, in ours. It's an unusual thing to do in a democracy. And so I assume that the British number is actually more representative of, you know, their actual defense spending than ours is. So if you add maybe, let's just play around with a small number, something I will understate here, almost certainly, an extra $100 billion a year, and say that that number is $770 billion a year. Now you compare that to the number two spender, and they're spending $67 billion. All right. What about the next military powers? The UK, France, China, and the Russian Federation. All of them together spend less than half of what we spend. Now, how does that stack up? with the British idea from the 19th century that their fleet should be as strong as the next two fleets put together. What if we adopted that exact same rule to maintain our levels of hegemony? Now, remember something. The Brits were doing this when they actually were at the ascendancy. We're crafting this policy when we're on the way down. If we want to be as strong in relative terms as the Brits were, you know, while we're on the way down and while they were at their ascendancy, what if we just adopted the same policy? What if we said our military has to be as strong as the next two militaries put together? That would be Great Britain and France. That would mean spending about $130 billion a year. Now, remember something. Great Britain and France are in places where they are much more likely to ever be threatened by some foreign power than we are. Those two oceans of ours make us extremely safe. These budgets represent the ability to project power. Of course, we know the defense budget's not really about defending. Sometimes it's about, you know, putting troops in other people's countries and conducting offensive operations. But if you stuck, if you even added a third power, take the, the rule that the Brits went by in their period of ascendancy, 
you know, and we adopted during our period of decline. And so you have to have, you know, the military expenditures of the next three major powers put together. Folks, we are still talking about being able to cut, you know, four hundred billion dollars a year from the budget or more. Four hundred billion dollars a year. That's not chump change. That's the real deal. When we talk about, you know, knowing when fiscal conservatives are serious, it's when you go in and say, okay, we're spending four hundred billion dollars a year. We don't have to spend. That's real savings. That's stuff you could trickle down to the states. That's stuff that would absolutely revolutionize, you know, the infrastructure of the country or the school system or whatever you deemed to be, you know, of tragic importance, something that we've seen just decline to levels that are dangerous and that are non-defense related. Now, let me talk about one aspect, though, that no one brings up and that would be interesting to conduct an experiment with regardless. Are you folks familiar with the term military Keynesianism. Military Keynesianism is an idea that, um, here, here's the way the story goes. Supposedly, in the middle of the Second World War, 1943, maybe 1944, depending on, you know, which particular meeting or occasion you're talking about, you know, the people who were going to be in charge of the world when the war was over begin planning what the post-war world's going to look like. And in the United States, among some people in some circles, including corporate circles, there was talk about how much the war had helped get the United States out of the Great Depression and how much, you know, anxiety there was that maybe once the war was over and we returned back down to peacetime military spending levels, that that might just take you right back in to the conditions that existed before the war happened economically. You know, the U.S. Depression, you know, we start pulling out of that in 38 and 39, 1938, 1939. You go through the war, 1945 comes around, you go back to those old levels, and you just economically get sucked right back into it. And so a proposal was made to continue wartime spending after the war was over, and for economic reasons. You know, there was talk about the ability for full employment to be reached if you kept the military large for two reasons. One, you take people out of the workforce put them in the military, but also because you had a massive influx of money coming from taxpayers and going right to business. The people who made these tanks, people who made these planes, that's the military industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke of. It's a little like an addiction, though. And you wonder if like an alcohol addict, if you cut off you know, this supply, if you decided tomorrow that we don't need this huge defense spending based on our needs and, you know, as a declining hegemon, we can't afford it, would we get the DTs? Would we, you know, start shaking and have seizures and, you know, the DTs can be fatal? Would we go back to the conditions that prevailed before we adopted the idea of military Keynesianism? That's interesting to speculate about, too, because, ladies and gentlemen, if that's the case... That would mean that we've gotten on a train that we can't get off of. It would be akin to an addiction in many aspects. Yet at the same time, as they always say in those multi-step addiction programs, the first step toward getting help and recovery is acknowledging that you have a problem. If those people in places like the State House in Wisconsin, these Republican budget cutters, if they want to get up there and make the case that, you know, we are in extraordinary times 
and we need to consider extraordinary measures in order to get our house in order because, you know, it's over. I mean, the, the, the time of dithering is past and we've hit an economic wall and we no longer have any choice. We have to look at things that were unacceptable to look at before. How are we not looking at our defense expenditures? And once you do that, then you have to look at what you ask your military to do. Remember, the defense expenditures are there to provide your military with the ability to do what you tell it to do. And if you're telling the designer of James Bond's car they need to be able to do anything, well then, you know, that's an unrealistic approach. There's no amount of money that's going to adequately fund you. You can always go up and say that our troops don't have what they need. If instead you do what the Brits did and set some sort of a baseline and say, what is it we're expecting our people to do? You can then decide what level of spending you need to do to make them capable of achieving that goal. It's time we look at the challenges that we adopted as a country during our ascendancy, you know, during the time in the 50s and 60s when we were stronger in relative terms than the Brits were in the 19th century. That's when we adopted those commitments it's time, just as those Republican governors in places like Wisconsin say, it's time for them to look over the commitments they made domestically. Well, it's time to look over the commitments we made internationally. There comes a time when adopting programs to pay for the defense, as you see it, of your nation, if they are so out of whack with your needs and your capabilities, that in and of itself undermines your security. Not to mention your liberty and all the other things that it warps, your political system. It's all the stuff Eisenhower did warn about in that speech. Well, you go back and you listen to that speech today, and it sounds like a peacenik, hippie sort of speech by comparison to the rhetoric we use now. That's the sort of rhetoric that doesn't even let us have a real open conversation with the American people about whether or not we need, you know, James Bond's car or whether a simple, tricked-out, gorgeous, expensive limousine would suit us enough. Hey, Jay, this is Ryan from New York. Now, since 18 years old, I've been studying the works of such, such influential American radicals as Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, and uh, other leading leftists like Karl Marx. I consider myself a leftist radical, and I am giving an activist call to action of sorts. Um, this uh, month, March 18th, 19th, and 20th, at Pace University, which is a city university of New York institution, at Pace in Manhattan, uh, they're holding the Left Forum, uh, which is a three-day event where there are over uh, a thousand speakers um, and over 300 panels. In the opening plenary, you have such speakers as Barbara Einrich, Cornell West, Laura Flanders, and Paul Mason. And in the closing plenary, I know for sure on Sunday, Malaya Joy is going to be one of those speakers. Um, I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on Twitter, so I figured I would call in and try to get as many of your listeners and perhaps even yourself to come one, two, or all three of those days. For further information on the Left Forum, uh, you can go to www.leftforum.org, which will give you know directions and fees, how to register and stuff. I hope to see as many Best of the Left listeners as possible there. I figure what better place to put a call out for the Left Forum 
uh, other than a show called Best of the Left. I uh, just want to say you do a great job, Jay. Please keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Peace, brother. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Eric from Michigan. Uh, I wrote you last week. I wrote you an email uh, in regards to my website. It's uh, emptythisapartment.blogspot.com. And uh, you wrote me back and said that I should call in the voicemail. So here I am. Basically, my story is my mother opened a shop here in Michigan, and she spent her entire life savings on it. This was last summer she opened it. This winter, she's kind of run into some some problems. Uh, she broke her back. Recently, she had to go on to uh, public assistance, and uh, she might lose the store, which is terrible because that's her dream. So I decided to... Uh, launch this this website and I'm trying to sell off just the little amount of things that I have to try to raise funds to save her store and uh, I'm also taking donations on the website again it's emptythisapartment.blogspot.com um, if uh, anybody has any questions of course my email is on the website and they can uh, feel free to Drop me a line and I'll answer anything. All right, thanks. Hi, Jay. Um, I'm choosing to remain anonymous for a reason you will see in a minute. But um, I'm a college student from Michigan, and I absolutely adored your feminist show because, okay, at the beginning of the school year, I was date raped, and... Um, especially the thing you said about legislators wanting to redefine rape and how everyone sees this is so horrifying, but you'd be surprised it's a kind of a very commonly held view. So I reported this incident to the school because I knew the person, sort of friends with him, and they basically didn't care, and it was pulling teeth to, like, get them to give me a code of conduct hearing against this person because he definitely violated the code of conduct and when I had it they spent hours deliberating and decided that he wasn't responsible for the charges because they couldn't prove something and I understand if you can't prove it I can see where they wouldn't expel him if they couldn't prove it but they, they didn't he didn't even get a slap on the wrist they just let him go completely free and um, you know, it's really just our society's view, I think, of this kind of thing, that it's so male-oriented and patriarchal and everyone blames the victim. And, you know, it's not even just conservatives that think this, because my school is like, oh, we're, we're very liberal, we care about women, and I think really, I mean, they'll say they do, but they don't, and that bothers me a lot. Anyway, I just kind of wanted to share that and thank you for doing the show because I think it's something that more people need to hear about and I love your show every week and I'm just kind of hoping to hear maybe what your thoughts were on that or anything anyone can do about that kind of thing. Maybe not. Anyway, keep up the good work. I would donate, but I am a very poor college student. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called in the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Before I get to today's voicemails and other things I want to talk about, uh, I want to mention that there are uh, 10 voicemails that I'm not going to get to. Uh, It's over 14 minutes of voicemails, people uh, giving their opinions on the uh, style of the show, basically. So I just want to go through those really quickly. Uh, Daniel from California uh, voted that he likes the in-depth single-issue shows. Miranda from Kalamazoo, Michigan said to keep it balanced. Randy from Indiana said that the two- and three-part series are definitely okay. Matt from Canada said that the uh, singular focused shows are actually left unlistened to by him. Uh, Chris from Middletown, New York, said that uh, he wanted to suggest kind of a hodgepodge episode every once in a while, uh, a bunch of clips that don't necessarily fit into any category. Uh, It's an interesting idea for sure. Uh, Chuck in Salt Lake City said that the single issue shows actually get passed out on CDs by him. He he likes those uh, so much that he burns them to CD and hands them out to friends. Uh, Jim in Dubai says that uh, uh, says to keep the in-depth shows coming. Max from Berkeley, California says uh, that it's good to document the in-depth issues. So you know, keep keep the single single uh, issue shows coming. Uh, John from Portland said that he loves the single issue shows, and Miranda from New York says that she uh, is in favor of mixed shows. So there you go. Obviously, uh, you know, a mix of responses uh, has been covered before. We kind of already uh, got the answer to all of that. I didn't want to ignore these people, but way too many voicemails uh, to actually play on the show. Now, to follow up on the things you heard from in voicemails today, uh, Eric from Michigan, the the website, again, that he was referring to is emptythisapartment.blogspot.com. Uh, he did write in to me. I thought that, you know, it was a great story for him to tell. I wanted him to tell it in his own words rather than me uh, just promoting it on the show myself. Uh, so here are my thoughts on his website. I, uh, I I checked it out myself and here's why I think he's not a scammer. <laughs> and maybe this never occurred to you. Maybe it wouldn't have. But uh, here's what you would do if you wanted to scam some people out of money. I hope none of you do this, but this is, this is what you could do. Uh, set up a website you're going to sell some stuff, just whatever you have around. Um, it doesn't matter what. And at the top of the website, you post kind of a sob story. You know, I'm trying to sell all these things. I want to raise money to help my mother. Uh, you know, she's pursuing her life's dream, but she's going through hard times because she's injured. And, uh, you know, help me help my mother. Uh, and then what you would do is sell a bunch of stuff, doesn't matter what, and jack the prices way up to cash in on people's sympathy. Well, uh, I don't think that Eric's a scammer because if he was, he's going about it all wrong. He did everything I just described except he's selling everything uh, everything that he's posted on the website for incredibly cheap. I mean, things posted as low as like $2, um, which are undoubtedly worth more than that to, you know, to the right person who, who would want it. Um, so he, it seems like he's not cashing in on the sympathy at all. So I certainly recommend you check out his website, emptythisapartment.blogspot.com. Uh, see the stuff he has available. Uh, my advice to Eric is you should probably raise your prices. You might, uh, you know, make a little bit more cash in on people's sympathy. Uh, my advice to everybody else is hurry over to his website and buy his stuff before he has a chance to raise his prices 
but then once you you know practically steal this stuff from him because he's asking so little uh, money for it, go ahead and drop a few bucks in his donation pot as well so that you're actually paying what you think it's worth. Finally now, in reaction to the very unfortunate uh, anonymous caller, uh, you know, female college student who called in after uh, to tell her story about being date raped, um, you know, this is just incredibly far outside my wheelhouse. She asked for my thoughts on, on the issue, and I just don't know. I, I have no idea what exactly is broken about this system, much less how to fix it. You know, the the best I can do is, you know, my reaction is that I'm a big, you know, liberal softie uh, on most issues, but especially when it comes to women being mistreated in any way. And so, like, I, I'd want to give her a hug, <laughs> but but I don't I don't know. I, I don't have any constructive advice. So I'm really hoping that some of you do. So please call in if you have anything to say on that subject, um, you know, whether it be specific advice uh, for this anonymous caller, uh, you know, your own stories, uh, you know, this sort of thing I think is helpful to get out, makes people feel like they're not alone. Anyone else who may be listening, um, I, I think it's a, it's a good thing to talk about because what I got from her message is that one of the worst aspects of the situation is feeling alone about it because other people don't take you seriously. So I'm happy to have, you know, a couple of episodes where the end of the show is voicemails of people exchanging stories and making everyone feel like you're not alone. So that's going to be it. I just want to thank a couple of members before I go, of course. Thomas G. signed up for a socialist membership back on November 26th and uh, and signed up for a full year in advance. And then Richard F. signed up back on February 1st, 2010 as a, uh, as a leftist membership, also paid for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Thomas and Richard and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Get details about the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All of that stuff is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fond farewell to a friend